Now, I am very, very excited because this is the Colossians, this epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Colossians. This little letter is my favorite book. And I have been looking so forward to finally getting to this book after all these years. Now, the book of Colossians contains the Bible's strongest written defense of Christ's preeminence. Many commentators, many who've studied the scriptures find that this little epistle, this letter that Paul writes, is the strongest written evidence of the preeminence, the superiority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going to take our time to get through these four little chapters, these four pages, as they say, and we will take it bit by bit. But Christ's position, Christ's role, is unmatched superiority and the most important person ever to exist. And so if he is the most important person to ever exist, why would you and I not want to know that person at a personal level? And we will, and we do. And if you haven't, if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, Today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day, and as we go through this letter, I pray that you will fall in love with the most important person that has ever existed. Amen? Amen? So be it, right? That's what an amen means. Paul's main purpose in this letter, we will see, is to refute the Colossian heresy that was taking place in that area. And let us look at what we will see here as an introduction to to Colossae. And we will just take the first eight verses uh, today, but we will get it next week into the preeminence of Christ. We will see the first couple of chapters surrounds the preeminence and the the establishment of who Christ is, the reconciliation, the, the forgiveness within Christ. We also see the significance or the sacrificial service in Christ, and then chapters 3 and 4 gets into the actual practicality of how you live that Christian life with Christ being preeminent in your life. Because it's one thing of knowing and hearing it, but it's another thing of doing it and actually living it. It's two different things there. And most people live in the world of, I know who Jesus is, but they know only of him. They don't know him personally and actually living a practical life as a Christian. And this letter will assist you and I in going in a deeper level of understanding, yes, but also a deeper relationship personally with the preeminent Christ as our Lord and Savior. So we sit here and let's read the first eight verses together and we'll break it down into here verse by verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. 
as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So we see here who wrote this letter. We see here, according to the custom of the writings of the letters of this time, the author's name is given normally first. Now, I like how letters are written back in these ancient times versus it is today. Because many times I will get that email or that text or that letter or that card, and it always starts off, say, Dear Pastor. But then I have to, if they're really a good writer, then it's usually maybe a page or two, or it could be a long, lengthy text there. But I don't know who wrote it technically if it's a letter until I look at the bottom and see who signed it. Well, these letters are signed right up front. Paul the Apostle tells you exactly who's writing this letter. So you know and you have it in context of who it is that's actually writing the letter to you. But Paul, according to this, wrote this letter while in Roman custody. We will see later on in Colossians chapter 4 that talks about this. He was probably right there in Rome in jail around A.D. 63 when he wrote this. And Paul probably wrote the letter because of the visit of Epaphras from Colossae that we will see here and touch on in verse 7. But Paul himself had never visited this city. He'd never been to Colossae. He had never met these believers in Colossae. These are brothers and sisters who he had indirectly known and been praying for and now ministering to by the power of the Holy Spirit leading him to write a letter to these people in Colossae. And so we see that by the will of God as an apostle, this is his role that God has called him to do, even in a direct way or in a direct way through this letter to minister to those there in Colossae. Now, in all but two of his early epistles, the first and second Thessalonians, and his personal letter to the Philippians, Paul began by letting them know that he has a calling on his life, and it was the will of God for his life to be an apostle. Now, he was not one of the 12 apostles that we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, who were called and were by Christ personally, who saw Christ and walked with Christ in the ministry while Christ lived here on this earth. And we see that through uh, in Acts, also in Luke and John. But he did also, Paul saw Christ personally. Now you remember, the, the inner 12, they were just walking along. They're still learning and growing and, and understanding who Christ is. It wasn't until after Christ's death and resurrection that the 11 really became personally following Christ in a way that they knew who he was and, and just empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of the ministry. Remember, Judas betrayed Jesus before going to the cross. And what happened now is here... They, these 11, the 11 guys in the inner circle, they're the apostles, took upon themselves that they needed to replace Judas. They had a sense that it needed to be 12, whatever that was calling, but they took it upon themselves in their unique way of trying to decide who would that would be. I personally believe Paul is who God was the one selecting to be the 12th. 
and that Paul was the one that God was going to use. And we see that God used Paul to write three-fourths of the New Testament. That's a pretty powerful statement in regards to God's um, use of him as an apostle, which is a divine appointed position uh, in the scriptures that we see. But we also know that because he saw Christ, remember on the road to Damascus, Jesus changed his life. He was converted there and and his eyes were open to who Jesus Christ was when he got hit and, and knocked off the high horse there on the road to Damascus. Now, we did see here that he sees Christ there. and We see it in reference in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 15. But he did possess also the miraculous powers given to, the, to authenticate the fact that he was apostle. And you can go back and look at that reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. And also Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, referencing as an apostle, God empowered them with miraculous abilities to do miracles. Now, Paul was qualified to write this letter of instructions to the Colossians, though he had not ever met them personally. It wasn't him who started the church in Colossae. It wasn't him who led the first person to Christ and from there built on that and built a church and created that within Colossae. But as an apostle, God gave him the authority and in the position to encourage and also to pour into them or disciple them through the methodology called writing a letter. Now, the literal meaning of apostle is to mean one sent. But at its deepest level, it designates an authorization or being a spokesman for God. And one commission empowered to act as his representative, and Paul certainly was. So Paul is saying to those believers here in this letter in Colossae is that he was sent as a messenger, in his case, by Jesus Christ personally to minister to them as we see through this letter. And this is really incredible if you really think about it because Paul, remember, was a persecutor of Christians. He was on his high horse going up with letters to empowered him to take back Christians to Jerusalem to, and put them in prison and have them killed. So here's someone who completely went against it. was one thing saying, I don't need to, I don't really care about Christ. Yeah, you can tell me about Jesus Christ and die on the cross. But okay, yeah, fine, 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 fine. That was good for my grandmother. That's good for my father and my mother. Yeah, yeah, my, my, my strange brother who gave his life to Christ. That's fine for him. But for me, nah. No, no. Paul was an active persecutor, a <laughs> killer of Christians. And God changed his life. Changed his life. And now God is now using the most unlikely person to do the most incredible things for God. I don't know about you, but don't lose faith in your fellow neighbor or a loved one in the family or that strange uncle that seems to be really out there. You do not know when God gets a hold of them and changes them what God can do in and through their lives. Do not give up on anyone. Amen? He didn't give up on you. He didn't give up on you. 
So why would you want to give up on anyone else, even though you visually, leaning on your own understanding, says, that is the most hardened criminal I've ever met. That's the most um, debauchery mind of that person living out a lifestyle that I have ever met. God can change a heart. So we see here that he was radically changed. We saw that conversion that, that, that changed life from Saul to Paul there in Acts chapter 9. And that happened around A.D. 34 of Paul's life. Now, this letter was written to the Colossians and is one of Paul's four prison letters according to the Bible. He probably wrote several letters while he was in prison. He had nothing else he could go do and go anywhere. And so as God led and the Spirit led, we see some of those letters that we study because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and been used by God in the lives of them there, but also for us here as well. And it took place in his prison, Roman prison time of A.D. 60 to 62. Now, not only do we see Paul here in the beginning, but we also see who's with Paul. And Timothy, in our brother, is with them, and he honors Paul, uh, Timothy by bringing him up, saying he's our brother, he's, he's sitting and he's, he's wrong here. But Timothy wasn't an apostle. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a, he was a believer. He was used by God to, in the life of Paul, but also in the life of many, as we see in the Scriptures. Now, though Timothy is here joined in this greeting, Yet he never been understood as having any part in this epistle. He was used, more than likely as we see, as being the scribe for Paul. So he was sitting there and as the Holy Spirit led Paul to talk, he wrote the word for word exactly what God had given Paul to write down in this letter. And that was his role as Timothy. Now, Timothy was with Paul often, and we see that very clearly in the scriptures in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, and 2 Thessalonians. And Timothy, if you remember, was a young man who was raised up with a Gentile father, but Jewish's um, godly women in his life, his mother and his grandmother, who taught, them, taught him the Old Testament scripture and poured into his life from a young life. And his mother and his grandmother, these godly women, were pouring into this young man in his childhood, as we see in 2 Timothy 3. But Paul picks Timothy up during his second missionary journey. And in Lystra, he was there and he meets him and he sees there in Acts 16.2 that the brethren was talking, talking very highly of what God was doing in and through Timothy's life. And when that happened, Paul said, I want to take you under my wing and I want to disciple you up and bring me with, you, with me into the missionary field, into doing a work of God here. Because I can see a calling on your life. And so Paul spent much of his time discipling young Timothy and wrote two of his last letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, to Timothy. Now we also see not only Timothy, but he's referring now not only because we, we knew that Timothy was there and Epaphras was there and others, but he was writing this letter now we see in the very beginning who was there, but who is he writing it to? And he says, to the saints and faithful brethren. So Paul was writing to and addressing the saints there in Colossae, and he didn't separate some Christians from other Christians in the Colossian church, except for he highlights the faithful brethren. Now, 
you can take that as just being something additional characteristic. Oh, the saints in Colossae, oh, they're faithful brethren. Or you can look at it in a different way and say, writing to the saints in Colossae, and he specifically highlights the faithful brethren. Because as we will see in the scripture and other places, we will know that there were some brethren who were not faithful. That they were actually given over or bewitched or started listening to false teachers. And the false teachers were causing them to walk away from the true faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. But to add to their relationship with Christ, they had to do other things. And we'll get into that a little bit more here. But either way, every true Christian is a saint. You don't have to be dead and then your life be analyzed and then determine if you did enough good things for God and you did some really miraculous things for God and that everyone proves and, and validates you after you're dead that you were a really good person. Then you have somehow a committee, religious committee says you're a saint. No, no, he's talking to saints who are alive. So it doesn't mean you have to be dead to be a saint. You have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to be a saint. So you're all saints. Saint brotherhood, right? That's a sisterhood. This is a pretty beautiful thing. And he calls them saints, and he refers to them also a distinction or a phase of faithful brethren. So he might be embracing the fact that you're faithful. You're sticking to the truth. You're sticking to the, the simplicity of the scriptures and what I have taught you, or what, what you've been taught by Epaphras. You are not like false teachers. You're not, you're not swaying. You're not moving away from the truth. You're, 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 you're moving on to some man's truth or philosophies of this world. But who are in Colossae here? What was going on here in Colossae? Well, we know that the, in Colossae is an ancient city, and this Colossae is in the uh, current day, modern day Turkey, as we know it today, along the uh, Lycus uh, River Valley, uh, next to or close by, about 11 miles or so away from Laodicea and Heropolis. And remember, Laodicea didn't do well either. Once they started in, in, in the church was growing, they got caught up into the false teachings. They, they walked away from the truth and the simplicity of, of a relationship with Christ. And if you remember, Jesus actually calls them out in Revelation 3 that they've turned to be a lukewarm spiritually. It's not good. It'll be spew you out. But both of these cities were very prominent. Why were they prominent at one point? Well, we know that the Laodicea was the financial center of that area. That was where all the banks were. That's where all the money was flowing. That's where the, the, that financial center took place, and that's where all the wealth and money took, took place. But we also know that in uh, Heret, uh, Heropolis was also a place where they went for their luxury. That's where they would go for the spas. And that's where they went there because they believed there was healing waters there. So you worked really hard in one city. You went to another city to, to relax and, and pamper yourself. For Colossae, that was the business. That was the blue-collar business center. That's where all the clothing manufacturing. That's where they were known for the dyes for their clothing. And it was a lot of trading and commerce happening. And it was a crossroads from the east, the eastern oriental trade uh, coming. And was also from the west, the north side. All the roads were moving in and through that Turkish area we call it today. Now because of that 
epicenter there, the city of Colossae, it was not even mentioned in the book of Acts. The city of Colossae was probably now at one point was in its heyday, but during the time of Acts, it became a very small town, small feel, and very insignificant because things had changed. It's no different than Watertown. At one point, the city of Watertown was very prominent, very wealthy, very prosperous because of the logging and the mining and, and the, the, the fur trade and all the things. This was a place to live and have business. But like everything else, things change, and now it's turned around to be a very small town. It's no longer a big city, not where all the money is. Now it's a poor, small town, just like Colossae. So here, the city of Colossae was probably just one of the smallest, least important cities that the Paul had ever written to. All of our biblical information about this, this, this church there comes is from this letter and a few references in Philemon or Philemon. It's the only two places you will actually see a references or speaking to of the, of the church here in Colossae. So it might be surprising that Paul would turn his attention to these Christians in this little, small, insignificant town that he didn't go and start. He wasn't evangelizing personally there, but still God led him to be a significant player into ministering and discipling those believers in that town. But it was very clear that God wanted to use him. Now, from these sources here in Philemon and here and there, Epaphras was responsible for bringing the gospel to the Colossians. He was a native of that city and also got the message out into the neighboring towns of the Eliscus Valley of Heropolis and Laodicea. And perhaps Epaphras heard the gospel himself when Paul was in Ephesus that he was led to Christ when he was in Ephesus because we see that Paul was lecturing there in Tyrannus. And he says in Acts 19.10 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So it would not be surprising that in some of those people in Colossae heard the gospel because Paul was used by God to, to teach and all heard the word of God. They all heard the truth. They all heard who Jesus Christ was. And then Epaphras getting saved. And then God using that man to spread the gospel in those three cities. Pretty incredible. Perhaps we see here that Colossae, even though it's one of the three cities located 100 miles inland from Ephesus, this area was a meeting point from the east and the west. God used it as a way to move the, 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 um, the gospel around in that area and to spread the gospel by having those trade routes. And that was not, not uncommon that we've seen in the scriptures. But yet the church there was important enough and merited enough to attention of the Apostle Paul. Now all kinds of philosophies came into town. Eastern mystical philosophies were coming in with the people. A stance that were from the Jewish uh, culture were moving upward into there. Cosmetology, cosmetology type inner city mentality, very what we call liberalism, would move in from also into that town. 
And so we see this, there was a large Jewish colony in Colossae. And so there was also this construct of influx of new ideas and doctrines coming in from the east. And it was like this fertile ground that was taking place for religious speculation and heresies to take place. Now, historically, Colossae was a prosperous city and famous city in the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean region here. But as we see this decline during the time here that Paul writes, we all also know historically within about a year to two years, Colossae and these cities sit on a major earthquake zone and that city gets wiped out within about a year to two years after this letter was delivered to the believers in that area. You never know what's going to happen. But God used that letter to bring attention and cause attention to those believers. Stop listening to the false teachers. Stop listening to the things that are coming in. Go back to the basics of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, the finished work he's done on the cross for you. Do not add. Do not delete. It puts you in great danger. You don't know what will happen in your life, and you'll be bewitched and be moved away from the belief in Jesus Christ. And guess what happens? Then a major earthquake hits. Timeliness of God to encourage the brothers and sisters in that town, in that area, to come back to Christ. Don't live in the world. Don't live in these false religious man's philosophies. Now, the church here, Colossae, probably would have never, ever been mentioned in the New Testament had it not been for the churches there, right? There was no need to mention this city. The city is never mentioned in the book of Acts because Paul never started the church there in in Colossae, nor did he ever visit there. But he heard of their faith that we see. He had never seen these believers personally, and he didn't have to. He just had to hear what God was doing in the lives of those believers in that town. And here was a church of unknown people in a small town receiving an inspired word of God, the letter, from the great apostle Paul. So how did the Colossian church begin? It's the fruitfulness or the outgrowth of Paul's three-year missionary journey in through Ephesus. So effective was the witness of the church of Ephesus that all they there in the area heard the word of God and it grew and through the lives of people that were touched kept going out sharing the gospel and one after another after another. That's exactly what God calls us to do. Once you become a believer, once you've heard the grace of God, you're to go out and do the works of an evangelist. You're to share what God has done in your life by the grace of God and to share and watch the Holy Spirit touch the hearts of those individuals. And what happens is all of a sudden now you find yourself, you're getting emails and textbooks and, and, and Facebook and whatever else. You won't believe what God is doing with my life over here in this other country or over here in the other United States. It's just been wonderful over the years of ministering to people here and, and watching the hundreds going out, being here for a period of time and then going out around the world and hearing what God is doing in and through your life. And now people we're who got saved here and got baptized here are now elders in other churches. They're deacons in other churches. They're serving in other ministries in other churches. It's just a blessing to watch how God and the fruitfulness from the early work that when they were here. And Philemon had a church meeting in his home. 
And it's likely that in his home, again, the word of God was working and moving in that place and causing this, this work to be done and, and continue to grow through this areas. And this is a good lesson for you and I. God doesn't always need an apostle, some high person in some church organization to do the work. Or a full-time Christian worker because he's full-time ministry and only he can do the work. No, he's asked all of us, even if it's part-time, quarter-time, full-time, you are full-time. Because you're a child of God. You're not a child of God part-time, only on Sundays. You're not just a child of God when you're in your homes. You're a child of God wherever you go and wherever God takes you and has you in the workplace, in the neighborhoods that God has you. And so you are part of the ministry. And because of this, you can, don't need some elaborate building. You don't need some, some highly extensive organized organizations with money that's flowing. You need to just be empowered by the Holy Spirit and go out and do the work of what God's called you to do. Day by day, moment by moment, week after week, month after month, until he calls you home. That is how the work of God works. It doesn't rely upon a building. It doesn't rely upon the organizational church. It repos- you are the church. God dwells in you. And when you show up, this place is filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with God, and he does a work. He speaks to you individually and equips you to go back out and do what? To do his work. To do what he's called you to do. It's as simple as that. But we see here, the church is helping to evangelize this small town mission field called Colossae. And we too are a small mission field town field here in the north country with a vision of just planting churches all the way through these little towns through the north country as god raises you up and puts a call in your life we send you out and we plant churches all the way through the north country we start here and then we move and we just go north east and i can't wait to see god work and continue to work here and throughout the North Country. But he ends here, of that verse, uh, verse 1 and 2 here, with grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's greeting was familiar. It's heartfelt. Grace is God's unconditional goodwill toward men and women. It was, his, it was a term used uh, within the Gentile world within, uh, to, 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 to show or to speak to them uh, in that language, Gentile language, but it was also the word um, peace is a Hebrew word, or shalom is also one of the signs. So he uses a Gentile term and a Hebrew term to speak to those who were in list, uh, receiving this letter about his just greeting to them, the, that grace to you and peace that comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter is full of love. It's full of concern by a Paul. It's written to a church that God had neither planted nor visited. And it shows the power of God, Christian love for others in, in, in the family. And Paul didn't need to see or meet or directly know these Christians in order to love them 
and be concerned for them because there's power in prayer and there's power in the fact that you can communicate, in this case, a letter to those in another area. In verse 3, he says, We give thanks to God, to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So though he had never met these people, the Christians of Colossae were on Paul's prayer list. He was constantly always praying for them. Why? Why is he giving thanks to God for these people he's never met? Why is he praying always for these brothers and sisters in Colossae he's never met? Well, because God had put a love on his heart for other people of the saints. It is a clear indication of someone who is saved, someone whose heart has been uh, changed. They cannot help but want to love God, but also love others, even if you have no connection with them where you get to benefit from them or get something from them or take something from them within the time of fellowship or being in proximity. You cannot get anything from them, but you still have this love, unconditional love for those people. Yet you know that that person's a Christian. Now, what's the purpose of the letter? I believe that that. Paul wrote this letter to the, the church in Colossae and why he was always praying for them because there was a crisis taking place within the church that he found out from Epaphras. That it, it, the fact that the ministry that it was God had started in that little town, that there were people coming in and causing destruction with that town by spreading false teachings within the people. Comparing his, the prison letters that he has written in the scriptures, we can arrive at the following reconstruction of the events of, of what took place here. Paul was at, a, uh, was at a time in prison in Rome, we saw in Acts 21 and Acts 28. And he remember, he met a runaway slave named Onesimus, who belonged to uh, Philemon, one of the leaders in the church of Philemon or in Colossae, I should say. And Paul led Onesimus to Christ, and he wrote a letter, to, a letter to Philemon asking his friend to forgive Onesimus, his, this, this slave, and to receive him back as a brother in Christ. And about the same time, Epaphras showed up in Rome because he needed Paul's help. Some new doctrines were being taught in Colossae and were invading the church and creating problems within the church. So Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians in order to refute, to, to battle back against the heretical teachings and reestablish the truth of the gospel. Now, Epaphras remained with Paul in Rome, we see in Colossians 4. When we get there, and Onesimus and Antiochus carried Paul's epistles, these letters, to these designated churches that he wrote. One to Ephesians, one to Colossians, one to Philemon. And Epaphras was called Paul's fellow prisoner. Why? Because he, along with others like Timothy, they didn't get in trouble. They didn't break the law. They were used by God to surrender their life, to give up their lifestyle in their town, to go come alongside Paul while he was in prison and ministering, and to help him through these tough, difficult times. 
to make sure that he was fed, to make sure he was taking his bodily cares were taken care of and encourage him while he was waiting to see if his head was going to be cut off or if he was going to be set free regardless of how much time that was going to take. God put on these men's hearts to go and minister, give up their own life to minister to Paul because they knew that Paul was being used by God in the lives of, of, of everyone in that area. So we see that happening in the scriptures. So why was that heresy threatening the peace and purity of the Colossian church? Well, the false teaching was a deceptive combination of many things that were taking place. Because of the crossroads of all these different cultures for financially and, and moving of the products, goods, and services, it brought people with all kinds of philosophies. We see Jewish legalism coming up from Jerusalem. We see the Eastern philosophy, the pagan astrology, the mysticism, the ascetism, which means a self-mutilation or self, um, uh, self um, hurting yourselves to try to get a, a more deeper spiritual uh, experience. You know, you hear the monks on their knees and they're praying and they, and they move on their knees to get bloody knees because it's a way they think they get a deeper spiritual uh, insight with God or again get in touch with God. Even a touch of Christianity was in there with uh, some twistings and with the early elements of these Bible scholars, it came to be known as Gnosticism or, um, or a term used by the Greek or uh, uh, Gnosis or which means to know or an agnostic is, to, is one who does not know. So all of this was creeping into this area and causing confusion, causing problems because there are a lot of man-made philosophies. And there's nothing new under the, sun, uh, under the sun now. You get new age is exactly what this is. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. And I like this, but I don't like this and I don't like that. So I'm not going to take that. Then you create your own little religion. I don't need to be in fellowship. I have my own religion. I don't need to, to, to worship Jesus Christ. I don't want to even talk about Jesus. But I'll talk about God and our higher power. And you, you get these Eastern philosophies. Oh, I can do yoga because yoga will help me to have a more deeper spiritual experience. Or I will light candles because it helps me with my deeper spiritual experience. I'll wear these clothes and these special underwear because it gives me this deeper spiritual re relationship. It, go on and on and on. As you study the false religions, they always add. They'll talk about Jesus Christ. But their problem is, is they diminish the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That's the false teaching. Anyone who says that Jesus is not preeminent and superior and is complete and full and you only need Jesus, but you need Jesus and something else and you, uh, Jesus and you must do something else, then you know you're talking to false teaching. You don't touch it. That is no Gouda. You don't touch it. You leave it alone and you call it out of the way it is in gentleness and in love to help them understand of the errors of their ways. Bring them back to the book, uh, the, the, uh, the epistle of Colossians. Take them back to the scriptures to help them to know that Jesus Christ is the only way. It is the only way, my brothers and sisters. Do not be fooled by the clever words and tactics and, and illustrations and videos and, and all these other twistings of the scriptures because they say you need to go back to the basic old church and you need to have the robes and you have to you know, hum and, and meditate to your belly button. It is not going to give you a deeper experience. 
You must understand it's a personal relationship, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, and he did it all. And by faith, you put your faith in his complete work on the cross. And you do not add, and you do not delete from the scriptures. And you go back. That's why we study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, the entire 66 books, because you need the whole counsel of God. So it's so solidified that no one will come in and try to beseech you or try to bring false teaching in to cause you to say you must go to church. Yes, but you must dress a certain way. You must go to church, but you also have to do this and you have to do that and you need to do No, my brothers and sisters. Go back to the basics and understand the complete work. And we will get into the much depth of that starting in verse 9 next week, Lord willing. Unless the Lord takes us home, that would be awesome. But in, in verse 9, we'll go into the preeminence and we'll go in what Paul is about to talk about and, and, and speak to. But do we have these heresies today? Yes, we do. It's very deceptive, very dangerous, and people are constantly coming up with something that says you can have spiritual perfection or spiritual fullness if you will just follow this formula, if you follow this program, if you will you'll have disciple a certain way, if you go back to the rituals of the old times and do the rituals and the hums and the, uh, the music has to be a certain way and all kinds of stuff, but they want to take you backward instead of forward in Christ. And pressing forward, and Christian believers must be aware of this mixing of Christian faith and, and transcendental, transcendental meditations and, and oriental mysticisms and, and this deeper life teachers that are out there and, and trying to, to, to sway you away from Christ. Anything or anyone who says and tries to take you off Jesus himself, you know you're not to touch. I'm, I'm warning you now, don't touch it. You don't need to research it. You don't need to get in and figure it all out. And you have to learn all about all those things because it's their ploy to suck you in. Just come back and go into the word of God and test all things based on the word of God. And then call it out what you see. Verse 4. And since we heard of your faith in Jesus, Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So we see here in these last four verses here, Paul's really highlighting something. He says, I've heard, I've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to see here in verses 4 and 5, faith, love, hope. You know the Trinity, right? <laughs> the triad of faith, hope, and love, right? Here we see the, he says, I heard that you have a faith in Jesus Christ. There's no question. Anyone who talks about you, they say that you have a faith in Jesus Christ. Does that speak of you? 
If I come up and I just happen to meet someone, and, they, and that happens many times, it really does. You know such and such family? They go to your church, I heard. I love those conversations because it really gives me an insight of what they hear from you or what they observe in your life as someone who doesn't come to this church. But do they speak of you or do they see a faith, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ? How would they know that? Because of your speech? Because of your actions? Because of what you don't do and what you do do? Because you've shared the gospel? People, it's not hard for people to know where you stand and what you put your faith in. If you put your faith in the football team and, and they're going to win and it's going to make or break your whole entire season of life, then they're going to say, oh, yeah, he's a football lover, such and such only. That would be the first thing that comes out of their mouth because that's all they have in relationship with you is maybe Sunday afternoon football. Now, I didn't say that's a bad thing. That's just identity. Someone says, oh, yeah, he, he's in the military or he works over here. I mean, there's identity and characteristics, but... Can they also say that you have a faith in Jesus Christ? Paul says, I hear you do. I clearly hear you have faith in Jesus Christ. There's no question in my mind. I've never met you. But I know. But then we see here, and your love for all the saints. A true Christian not only talks about Jesus has no problem wanting to share who Jesus is. It's their best friend. It's their Lord, their master. They're the one who saved them. How could you not talk about Jesus? But the second characteristic of a very strong, healthy Christian is their love for some of the saints, for just a select few that are like-minded in the fellowship. No, all the saints. Now, you know that God is doing a work in you when you can say that you have, and if people heard that, you love all the saints. Meaning, the person who's talking about you says, they love everybody. It, you never see them in a clique. You never see them only talking to a select few that are like-minded They can because they get together and they, they kind of separate themselves from everybody else and do their own thing. No, no, no. A healthy, solid, believing person loves all saints. It doesn't matter the age or any characteristic you want to talk about. You don't hang around just the ones that have all the money because they get invited to the party. Or you don't only hang over here because they just happen to be all military, so we only hang with the people who are in the military. We don't segregate. You don't, there's unity in Christ because there's a love, an unconditional. That word love here in the original language is agape love. That word love is agape. That means it's unconditional. I don't just love those who think and agree with me in my, my thoughts. But there we recognize there's a unity and we all, both, all of us had the same Savior, the same Lord. And we're serving together. And we're, to, we're together when there's some really bad things happening in life. Physically, mentally, spiritually, happening really bad things. They're there. When things are going extremely well and there's, there's marriages and babies are born and grandkids and there's so much celebration. And we're there with them at, at those high times as well. 
Paul said, I, I heard you have a love for all the saints. There's no disunity in this church for those, 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 those brothers and sisters. But he also said, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Not only did they have the faith in Jesus, not only did they have a love and unity with one another in that church, but they all had the same hope that was laid up, that was solid, that was just waiting in anticipation, the fact that they were all going to heaven. They had such an anticipation that God was coming back for them and taking them to heaven, and they could not wait. It was laid up. It was just waiting for it to happen. And he says, which you heard before the word of the truth of the gospel. Jesus is truth. There's so many men's philosophies that come up and they say it's true, but it's not truth. You need to hold on to the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the truth of the scriptures, not the true of someone who speaks. Because there's a lot of things that are true. Right now, I, I don't know. When I walked in here, it wasn't raining. I think that's true. I don't know if it is true today. Have you walked in if it was raining or not? It could be true or not true. But when you talk about truth, and that's the scripture, the word of God, that never changes. Do you hear me? It never, ever changes. It will outlast <laughs> your good ideas. It will outlast that person you're listening to that has a philosophy that kind of tickles your ear and makes you want, I like that guy. I like, I like her. Big O, is, she just talks. I just love her on that show. That philosophy of that woman will fade away. She's the poster child of what was happening in Colossae. And you still listen to her. I'm warning you, you'll be besieged and you'll be just like the Colossians and those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Your faith will be weakened and Jesus Christ will become no longer preeminent in your life, but will diminish. Look at the Jehovah Witnesses. They diminish Jesus. Look at the Mormons. They diminish Jesus. It goes on and on and on. Don't be, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. So he continues here and he says, your hope is in heaven here, but which has come to you as it has also in all the world. He says, what started in you and the things in the enemy is coming to try to attack it, to stop the work of God. But I'm telling you, I'm hearing that God has worked through you and has worked through you in a mighty way. It's becoming fruitful in all of the Roman Empire, in the Mediterranean region. It's just spreading forth this fruit as it is among you in the day that you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. When you knew who Jesus Christ was, the truth, the grace of God, and he also then lifts Epaphras up and he says, but you also learned from Epaphras. That, that, 
that spiritual leader that God raised up to lead you to Christ, he was also used by God to teach you and to disciple you in your relationship with Christ. And so he is a dear fellow servant. He's come alongside me. He is a fellow servant. He was been there. He's he's right there with you. It's not that Epaphras was some superior Christian person. But he was faithful in what God had called him to do, and that is to spread the gospel and to, to, to disciple others up. He was faithful in that, and God was using Paul to encourage him that, that this is a good brother. This is a solid brother. He's a faithful brother. He's a fellow servant. He's right there with you on Christ's behalf. God had a calling on his life, and God is using him, and he's faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And as we press forward in this letter, the letter to the Colossians, we'll continue as we move through this. We're going to see Paul is going to hammer away at every single point these Gnostics, these people, these false teachers were trying to implant into the minds of these people. He's going to hammer on each of those key points to show that Christ is preeminent, and it's not of the philosophies of men. And so hang on. Hang on with us through this next four simple chapters. Small little letter, but very, very powerful for you and I. Why? A, it will protect you, but even more important even that besides protecting you, he can take that and use you to help others who have been listening or have been deceived in part of that false teaching to encourage them to come out of that and come back to the relationship with Jesus. God has sent his son to die for us. Every person who believes in Jesus Christ is saved and is part of his body, the church which he is the head of. I'm not ahead of the church. You're not ahead of the church. Some higher organization is not ahead of the church. Jesus Christ is ahead of the church. And we are united to Christ in a wonderful living relationship. And we don't need to add to that relationship. Because each believer is complete in him, we see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, when we get to that. All of God's fullness dwells in Christ, we will see in Colossians chapter 2 as well. And we share that fullness, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So no angel oversees you, no no. No uh, darkness or anything can grip and hold you in as a believer, as a, as a child of God. You are, have fullness in Christ alone, and you do not have to look anywhere else. And this is going to be a powerful letter, and that's like I said, it's my favorite book, and I'm so glad you're here to watch and listen. Amen?